The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today I read for you and ask you to follow in your Bible from several portions of the last two chapters of Scripture that's a continuous narrative. The chapters speak of the great final reality of God's people present with Him when this world as we know it is done away and a new heaven and new earth exist and God's people dwell with Him. I'm going to read the first five verses of Revelation 21, then a portion at the end of that chapter into the beginning of chapter 22. Listen to God's word about these wonderful realities to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. and There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In verse 22 of that chapter, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will will bring their splendor into it. And on that day, its gates will never be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, and nothing impure will ever enter there, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face." And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not be need of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, as we consider these things you have revealed, there are many wonders here. But may we not miss the great wonder of it all, your face. 
promise to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. A legend is told that in Europe a long time ago, perhaps based on some truth, a kind-hearted traveler met a young boy who was an orphan who had suffered much from poverty and neglect, and this man was moved to adopt the boy and take him to his home. He had no children. And so that boy was well-fed and educated and greatly loved as a son of that house. About 10 years later, the opportunity came along where a physician said, I believe there's a surgery I can do that can correct this boy's sight. And so now the 15-year-old had the operation, and it was successful. And he returned from the hospital for something wonderful. Now he saw with his eyes for the first time the home he had lived in, his adopted home. And there was stunned amazement for him to realize something that his father had concealed from him, for the father was actually of European aristocracy. He was a duke, and he lived in a great palace. And now these first sighted eyes could see huge gardens spreading out for acres around the mansion and a great library with books the boy could take down and handle and a vast dining room and palatial trappings that he could be told, one day you will inherit all this. But the story says that best of all that day of the things the boy saw and saw from that day forward was the smile of his father, his father's face that he had never seen before and now could look upon throughout his life. Back in 1733, the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards said in a sermon entitled The Christian Pilgrim, some words that have been remembered and quoted often since. Here's what Edwards said. God is the highest good of all his reasonable creatures. Enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. He said, to enjoy God in heaven is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. Alongside knowing him, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children or earthly friends are only shadows. They are but scattered beams, and God is the sun. They are streams, but God is the fountain. They are droplets. God is the ocean. There's a man who had a big idea of God. The moment a believer trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord, the Scripture says through the gospel, we actually enter heaven in the sense that we are now citizens of heaven. And the realities of that place are promised to us. We actually belong there. We reside there at God's right hand with Christ. And we know that at death, the soul of a Christian comes into Christ's wonderful presence. I was struck this week as Pastor Irvin spoke at a funeral service by the text he chose. Hebrews 12 speaks of the dead who are already secure with the Lord in the phrase, the Spirit's of righteous men made perfect. That's what we will be. Immediately at our death, we will be the spirits of righteous men and women made perfect. 
When Christ returns to history, then there's another phase. We've spoken about the dead in Christ will receive resurrection bodies, and I have much more to tell you about that reality, Lord willing. But last time we saw that when Christ comes, the whole created order, the cosmos itself, is going to be renovated, remade in some marvelous fashion that is very hard to understand or describe, but God promised it and said there will be a new heaven and a new earth as the final home of righteousness, according to Second Peter 3. Well, this that we've read about in Revelation 21 and 22, the last glimpse of anything the Bible gives is of God's people living in that reality. People love the promise of John 14, too, when it says the words of Jesus, I go to prepare a place for you. Revelation 21 and 22 is telling you of the place that he's prepared. The new heaven, a new earth, the final home where God's reality will dwell with his people in an uncluttered way. You know what is really interesting? Even in our thinking about heaven, we still can't get ourselves out of the middle of the equation. We're, we're like little children who want to know, will my puppy be in heaven? Except we adults say, well, will I be married? Well, what will my body look like? Well, what will I do there? But you see, too many of our questions are based on that. What will I get out of it? And what the Scripture reveals is actually not a you-centered heaven, but a God-centered heaven. For the great meaning and purpose and glory of this final reality is that heaven exists for God, and it has no meaning apart from His presence at the center of it. 1 Corinthians 15.28 says that history's ultimate goal is that God in Christ would be revealed to be our all-in-all all-consuming reality would center on him and seeing him. And about the knowledge we'll have of him, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, Now we see these things only in a mirror as dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know things only in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known We're being promised that the Christian's everlasting condition will be to enjoy the glory of God, to bask in it, reflect upon it, grow towards it, and see our whole beings fulfilled in a way we could never imagine as we were with our Savior. It would be exactly like the once blind orphan boy discovering what his home really looked like and what his father's face really looked like for the first time. Today I want to tell you a short first point. It's more theological than personal in nature, but it's important to notice this from our text in verses 1 to 5 of Revelation 21. The final heaven on earth certainly consummates God's ancient covenant of grace. That sounds very doctrinal, but let me tell you what I mean. Here we have a picture, it's all in symbols, of Christ receiving his bride on their wedding day. The bride is the church. You and I, I know guys, it's a little hard to cast yourself as a bride, me too, but that's how the church is cast. We are the bride of Christ. And what the picture that opens here in Revelation 21 is of a lovely bride being presented to her husband. That's every believer from history, Jew and Gentile alike, 
African and North Asian and South American and everyone else coming to their Savior. By the way, a little footnote here. Someone will ask me about it if I don't mention it. Why does it say there's no longer any sea? For some of you, the seashore is your idea of heaven. And you say, boy, you sure spoil it if you tell me the seashore is not there. Well, there's a reason for that. For Israel, the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, was not a good place. It was a place of unrest, a place of storms. It was a place where all the invaders came from in their boats. And they discharged armies that came in and and invaded the land of Palestine. So to not have a sea that could have a storm or an invader coming from it was a good thing. It was part of telling them that the curse of sin was canceled, and this was a fresh new world where storms could not disturb. Here we have this bride, the church, who is said to be beautifully dressed. We who know the gospel ought to understand the costume she's wearing. It's a borrowed dress because it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that a believer wears. We are dressed in righteousness, not our own, that is given to us as God's free gift, justifying us, cleansing us from sin as Christ died for us in our place and did what we couldn't do. He gives us the dress we'll wear to meet him and to be welcomed as his bride. But then you notice verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 3, where the voice from the throne of God makes a momentous announcement. It says this, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. You need to be founded on theology, and I need to stop for a moment over this verse as the fulfillment of one of the great points of theology in all of the Bible. For I would remind you of what the Old Testament calls the covenant of God's grace. Spelled out beginning in a place like Genesis 17 where Abraham was told if he would trust God and walk with him and his descendants would do the same and other nations would do the same, God's purpose was to gather Abraham and all these people into himself and call them his family, his covenant people, to adopt them, to dwell with them, to be in special relationship to them through all history, and eventually to bring them into what the Bible elsewhere calls the Sabbath rest of the people of God. Folks, the cross of Christ makes the entry into the covenant people of God the one way that we all know, secured for us in Christ's death. And you see now that everything God is doing way back from the Old Testament moving forward and saying, I'm going to have a people, I'm going to bring them to myself, I'm going to adopt them, I'm going to cleanse them, and then I'm going to live with them, Revelation 21, verse 3, brings to a consummation. It's the conclusion of God's whole purpose throughout all of Scripture, to be in the midst of His people and to be glorified before them and to bring them the fullness of himself. The biblical covenant of grace is consummated there. Now let me move past that and go on to look at the later part of Revelation 21, starting at verse 22, for there's a continuous theme here that verse 3 begins and, and is developed more. And we read there, I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. The city didn't need the sun or moon. Because the glory of God is its light and the Lamb is its lamp. Based on that, I want to tell you a second point. 
And that is that our longing for heaven is really longing for God himself. Our longing for heaven is longing for God himself. David, in so many ways, in different psalms, expressed it. He said it in Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, and my body longs for you. Augustine, the great man of God who lived in the 500s A.D., said God is the end of all our desires. And he wrote that prayer that many of you would know when he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and therefore our heart is restless until it rests in you. The best and final gift, the epitome gift that God is going to give us is himself. The core of our worship in heaven will be direct worship in the presence of Christ our Lord, exhibiting to us the glory of God. Many of you know a little bit about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It has that famous question. People who have never memorized much in the catechism usually know the first question and answer. What is man's chief end? It's saying, what's the purpose of man? Why did God make him in the first place? What are we on this earth for? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They're always surprised, you see, that this is a Presbyterian catechism because they think Presbyterians don't enjoy anything. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, eternally. You see, 1 John 3, 2 promises the believer in Christ, we are now, right now, the children of God. But what we're going to be isn't yet very clear except for this, that when he appears, we're going to be like him, Christ, for we will see him as he is. Wow. Every time I ever hear that, I pause over it. Now, what does it mean that we're going to see God? The theologians have debated this, and most of them would say we don't believe it means we're going to look at the naked core essence of God the Father, the tremendous mystery who is God, but what we are going to look upon is His Son, whom He put forth on this earth as a man to bear our image, to allow us to see in the face of Christ the glory of God. We're going to look on that face in a physical way. When Christ went to heaven, he did not cease to have, you see, his incarnate nature as man. He didn't become a spirit. He is the God-man at God's right hand today. And we sing in hymns and say, I'll look upon his pierced hands. I believe that's accurate theology, according to the Scripture. We will look at Christ. We will look at him who said when he was on earth, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You've seen enough about God to know that your questions will be settled. Don't we all have questions? You know, I hear people that say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to pull out my question list, and I'm going to start ticking them off. God, what about this? Why'd you do this? Why did I have to wait so long for that? Why did... I think your questions list is going to melt in your pocket, seriously, when you look on the face of your Savior. You're going to stop arguing and rebutting and saying, God, you did it wrong. 
There's a reason why Revelation 21 says there's no temple in the final heaven, no building you have to go into to find God or worship God, no place appointed that, that you know, here's where worship happens. Why is that? Because we will have unimpeded access to Christ our Lord and learn by seeing him what we need to know about God. Isn't it true that, that worship is always a formal exercise today requiring a certain amount of effort. I told the folks at the early service that they get a star that you folks at 11 o'clock don't get because they are, they're here at 8 o'clock. Now, they're still rubbing the sleep out of their eyes and yawning and stretching, and the kids aren't quite conscious yet if they're being brought along, but they're here, and they, they forced their bodies to say, it's church day, let's go worship God, and let's now get our mind awake and see if we can sing this hymn and and uh, hear the Scripture and listen to the preacher, so when we go away, we'll say, I worshiped God. And then maybe during the week, we'll discipline ourselves to say, oh, got to sit down. It's Monday morning. I should have my devotional time and, and read this chapter of something and, and pray, and I've got to worship God. I've sort of forced myself to do it. Can we even imagine an experience when the, when the air that we taste going into our lungs tastes of worship? Can we even imagine not having to have a formal structure to worship? When our heartbeat beats as one with our Savior because we look upon Him and He never goes out of our sight and praise to Him flows as naturally and as effortlessly as walking or breathing. Can we imagine it? That's what we're going to have. God's glory seen in the splendor of Christ will never be far from our vision, and worship will not be like doing homework, I promise you. It will be a pleasure and a joy and a great delight. Thirty years ago, I was in a tough time in my early ministry years. I was trying to figure out where God wanted me. It didn't seem like I was where he wanted me. And some things were dark and difficult and hard for me, and I go through that kind of a time as maybe some of you go through it, but I reached a point where God's Word reached out and grabbed me, and a portion of His Word that did grab me has remained what I would call my life verses ever since. Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Because I was in a moment when I couldn't depend on myself anymore or my abilities anymore or anybody around me to give me the right advice or, or figure it out for me, And the Lord threw me upon this from his word, and I've taken a stand on it ever since. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart shall fail. They were failing then for sure. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What an overflowing portion of the divine presence is Jesus Christ going to be in the final heaven. That prayer that Paul made in Ephesians 3 is finally going to be fulfilled in us. We will at last comprehend what Paul called the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. We don't comprehend it yet, but we're going to. And he said also there that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. Imagine that finally being true. 
You know, if you could take the thrill you get from your sports team winning a championship. Sorry, Eagles, you, you can at least remember it even if it isn't happening this year. If you could take that thrill you have when your team does everything right, if you could take the pleasures you get from your favorite hobby or activity or reading or friends or shopping or whatever it is you most enjoy doing, if you could take the happiness and the contentment you feel on a Christmas day gathered with your family, package it up and say, this is joy, this is delight, this is satisfaction, this is something thrilling. Folks, it isn't even a pale ghost to what you're going to experience and experience continually. No wonder Paul said in Philippians 1.23, he wasn't a suicidal man when he said this. He wasn't somebody who was in the depths of depression at all. This was Christian hope speaking when Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, better than anything. There's nothing that can compare to it. You ought to discover a Puritan Scottish man named Samuel Rutherford. I hardly know if there was ever a man more in love with Christ than Samuel Rutherford from the things he wrote. He wrote wonderful letters to people that just overflow with praise to the Lord. One time Rutherford said, O Lord Jesus, if I could be in heaven without Thee, that would be as a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee there, that would be a heaven for me because thou art all the heaven I want. That's what we're talking about. That's the theme of these last two chapters of Scripture. Captivation, fixation on the glory of God in the face of our Savior will be heaven, will be the core of what heaven is. And so if you look with me lastly at these first five verses of chapter 22, the theme just continues. It isn't so much a new subject as a continuation as we see here that heaven's prize is the face of the giver, not merely his gifts. There are many symbols in this passage. I haven't tried to unlock them all, but two of them are prominent at the beginning of Revelation 22, the river of life flowing out of the throne of God, and the tree of life, which actually is more than one tree on both sides of the river. It's almost like an orchard with fruit coming in all seasons. Now, what do those things mean? Well, we could probably enter into a long discourse on them, but let's keep it simple. In Middle Eastern lands, a refreshment of having water was life-giving, life-bestowing. The river of life is simply the refreshment of God by His Spirit giving us His life. And this tree of life is symbolic of the very life of God in us and this sustenance that God gives to sustain our life. I think we're being promised here in these two symbols that God is going to sustain and refresh His people through all eternity without any failing whatsoever. That's at least the simplest understanding. But you see, the text doesn't dwell on what we shall drink or what we shall eat. It once again puts all its focus on the great gift, God himself. Look at verse 4. It's not a new statement now. It's just a restatement. Revelation 22, 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the Lord God will give them light. It's not a coincidence that the night before he went to death, Jesus prayed 
as recorded in John 17, 24. Father, my desire is that those whom you gave to me, those people I'm dying for, that those people will be with me where I am so that they might behold my glory. Do you see that beautiful consistency of Scripture? Jesus was praying for the reality of Revelation 21 and 22 the night before he died. John Donne, the poet, said, No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live until I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. Well said for a poet. Back to Rutherford again, my great friend from Scotland. He wrote a hymn that has come to be very important to me. In our hymnal, it's understood uh, by its first line, but I know the hymn by its title, In Emmanuel's Land. Rutherford played upon something that applies to Revelation 21 in the church as a bride. He knew that every bride values her wedding dress more than anything she would ever wear in her life. I can't speak from experience, but I would imagine that every young girl starts thinking about that when she can first understand that someday perhaps she'll be married. And she'll start to picture herself in a wedding dress. And what will it be like? And, and what kind of fabric would I have? And sleeves and all this. And, and so imagine the joy. Imagine the, the fixated delight when she finally has it on. Her wedding dress. Now, folks, I have unique experience with this because there are those times every year when I stand down in front of this pulpit. And the doors back there or the doors over there open. And out comes the father with the bride on his arm. And down here is a scrawny-looking fellow in a tuxedo that doesn't fit very well, and he's craning his neck to see the sight. And let me tell you what, I, I can, it's almost a consistent experience. The bride comes down this aisle, and I'm looking right at them. And first she's looking about, she's seeing Uncle George and Aunt Mary and, and beaming in pleasure. Here she is in her beauty. But usually it's not more than half the length of that aisle, if it's even that much, when suddenly I don't think she's thinking anymore about what do I look like and what am I wearing, because I see it. I see her eyes go to this scrawny fellow down here, my husband, my bridegroom. And all of a sudden, that's all she's looking at. Rutherford understood that. And he said in his hymn of our experience of coming to see Christ the bride, us, eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. And then he went on to say, I won't be looking at the crown he gives me, but at his nail-pierced hands. For that lamb, my bridegroom, is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Christ will be our great reward. Heaven and Christ are basically synonyms. And in knowing Him and looking on Him, we will be flooded and drenched and transformed by the holy presence of our God. You know, in the children's book, I don't know if you ever read the book, but you've seen it as a movie or a film. J.M. Barry's little book, Peter Pan, has Peter, the character, the main character, say at one point, to die will be an awfully big adventure, won't it? 
man or woman in Christ, to die will be an adventure that never ends. For us, heaven is not a vaporous land of clouds. The final heaven is a concrete place of joys and delights and meaningful life and learning and fulfillment where Christ waits for us. And we need to wait for that, not in some half-hearted apathy, but in the great hope held by Old Testament saints who are named in Hebrews 11 when it says that they looked forward to the city that had foundations. You hear what the author's saying? The real place, not this place, the city with foundations is home, whose builder and maker is God. And it said there, they longed for a better country, a heavenly one. There's no parent of young children who hasn't at some time gone on a long car trip. And not too far into the trip comes the voices of the little demons from the back seat. Are we there yet? Are we there? Sometimes the little demons fall asleep along the journey, and you get there, and you pick them up and lift them out of the car, and their eyes pop open, and you can tell them, we're there now. Isn't it wonderful to think that the church, the bride of Christ, gathers together week by week and reminds one another, and maybe we should even cry it out as a question and say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we remind one another in our songs as we remind each other of our Savior that one day all too soon, we will be there. Oh, what a blessed day. We will be home. Praise God. Our Father, how my heart aches for someone who doesn't know Christ. For someone to whom all this talk just sounds like empty theories and poetry. I pray, O oh God, that that person today would have your spirit break in upon him, break open that hardened, unbelieving heart, to look on Christ, to see him now as Lord, and to know that to gaze at him for a lifetime means the real gazing that will last forever. I pray you do this even for one today. To Jesus' wonderful praise. Amen.